Our study is in verses 13 through 21 of Acts chapter 20. Verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, as we come now to study your word, we pray for the anointing and blessing of your spirit. We pray that you would lead us and guide us in your word, that you would even now begin to write that word upon our hearts and that we, Lord God, would, would allow that more than anything else, Lord God, that we would just let you have your way with us today, that we would grow in your grace and knowledge and truth. And Lord, that we would also embrace the very heart that Paul had and have that as our heart, a heart of humility, a heart of, of compassion, passion and empathy for those who need Christ and for those who are in Christ and in need of of strength and help. But we ask you, Lord God, to lead us and guide us into all of your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. We've come to some of the most personal and revealing accounts pertaining to the heart and mind and purpose of the Apostle Paul in this 20th chapter of the book of Acts. The more I read the 20th chapter of Acts, the more that I love this particular chapter in that I see in Paul how much truly he loved the church, how truly he loved the people in the body of Christ and desired them to be safe through this life that we live on this earth until glory would come. Already we've peered into his loving and compassionate concern for the church, especially the churches which the Lord gave him an opportunity to start or, or to grow. And, and of course that deep love he had is evident as well throughout the remainder of this chapter as we shall see. But Luke continues to provide a, a travel log for Paul's journeys. And while we may not delve into this information in a very in-depth manner, there are some significant occurrences that need our attention and examination. So take, for instance, verses 13 through 16, the part that we did not read this morning, but let's look at it now. Verses 13 through 16. And then we went ahead. Again, Luke is writing this account and is now in uh, company with, with Paul again. But he said, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Well, that's one of the significant things to look at. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogillium. 
And I'm very happy to have all those words out of the way. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, Paul, as as any minister could attest, Paul contended often with hindrances, as we saw in our previous study, when he was about to set sail for Syria and he discovered a plot to have him killed, and so his plans were altered. Rather than sail and, and you know, face that uh, particular uh, uh, death, he, he decided to go in a different direction. The short bursts of travel from Greece through Macedonia to Troas, and on top of his concerns for eventually reaching Rome and Spain, the, uh, uh, going, uh, first of all going to Jerusalem, not to mention so many changes to his calendar to reach Jerusalem now, instead of at uh, Passover, now at Pentecost, had surely caused tremendous burden upon Paul's hearts. Think about how many times when we have to change our schedule, uh, schedules and, and things that uh, we get a little bit uh, perturbed from time to time. So think about Paul in that particular case. If, if there was anything that could ease that weight of burden, though, on the Apostle Paul, it had to be the communion that he was sharing once again with Luke and, and Titus and especially his son in the faith, Timothy. I read this last week, but I think it's, it's worth reading again in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 7, where it says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, Paul writing to this church, our bodies had no rest, he says, but we were troubled on every side. So it gives us an indication of the struggles of ministry. And then Paul says, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul wasn't just comforted with Titus's presence, but he was comforted in the fact that this church in Corinth, now by this time in the writing of his second letter, which some commentators believe was, was actually the fourth letter he had written to him, we only have two of, of the letters, but this being the, the last one anyway, uh, that uh, this church has grown and, and, and they've grown maturely enough to have a desire to pray for Paul and be concerned for Paul. So that concern comes to him and, and that they cared so much even to mourn for him. He rejoiced in, in, that, uh, in that concern. So Paul's heart could be lifted by good news. I, I would have to say that that's any of us here. Any of us would be lifted with good news, right? I think good news is always helpful because we live in a day and age of bad news. I, every time I open a paper, a newspaper, or, open, or, or watch a, a news program on TV, I mean, it's mostly bad news. So good news is really good for us and, and helpful and healthy and, uh, and, and uh, spiritually healthy. And, and so uh, what we need to understand about that is this. Paul needed that. And still we're told that he would bypass traveling, traveling by ship for 30 miles. From Troas to Assos. Think about this. He receives good news, but then he tells Luke and the guys, he says, you guys take the ship. I'm going to walk. Now, the, the, the travel by ship would have taken, 30, it would have been 30 miles. He decided to walk 20 to Assos and to do so alone. And with all the labors of the past on his heart, with all the commotion and conflict of the present, with all the expectation and yearning of the future, 
Paul had to walk those 20 miles in quiet meditation. In Assos, he joins his traveling companions again to sail with them until they arrive in Miletus, some 30 miles south of Ephesus. But I think it was significant that for those 20 miles he walked alone with God because of what was going to take place in Miletus with the Ephesian elders. What was going to be said. We know that Paul was inspired to write and to say the things that he did, especially as we get it recorded in the book of Acts, especially here in chapter 20. At this point you might be asking, well, what are we learning from this travel log? Why are we getting so many details about where he goes, why he goes, and, and how he goes? But this, this is really important. We need to focus on two things in the life and heart of, of Paul. We need to focus on two things in the heart and life of Paul. First of all, focus upon the apostles' rest. Focus upon the apostles' rest. Upon whom did he rest? You see. And then secondly, we need to focus upon the apostles' restlessness. We have, we're to focus on his rest, but we're also to focus on his restlessness. We see both in this chapter. You see, Paul was a man who was first and foremost mastered by Jesus Christ. He was mastered by Jesus Christ. In other words, we know one thing that Paul said about himself. He said he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But to say that was not just to, to use some kind of nice language to, to try to, you know, push himself off as an apostle of, of the Lord, even though he wasn't in the original uh, group of twelve. No, he, he said, this is who I am. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. He is my master. So in everything I do, I am mastered by Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had no other motive than that of being mastered by such a wonderful Lord and Savior. Time and again, in the things that Paul writes, we see this very clearly. Take, for example, Philippians 1.21. He says, for to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. And I want you to focus on that phrase, to live is Christ. With every breath he lived, Jesus Christ. With every breath that he took, with every step that he took, with everything that he did, with every thought that he thought, he lived Christ. And even still, he would say things as he does in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. These are indications of how He lived His life. How His life was mastered by Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Oh, that the church and the members of the body of Christ would take hold of these words and apply them to their lives each and every day. I don't live by me anymore. I live by Christ. Can we say that? Can we as believers in Jesus Christ say, I've been crucified with Christ? What does that mean? Well, if we understand crucifixion, we know that that means we go to death each and every day. We die to ourselves so that we might live in Christ and Christ live in us. This is the mastery of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. But it was so evident in the Apostle Paul. And as a result, he pressed every situation and every circumstance 
circumstance, whether of adversity or prosperity, into service for Jesus Christ, which was the passion of his heart. So if you go to Philippians chapter 4 and you read verses 10 through 13, listen, you have to understand something. I, I, I'm giving you all of these verses because at the end of this, at the end of this particular passage, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we have to understand why he can say that. And we need to, we need to grab hold of the true understanding and the true context of what he says. Because so many people today, uh, they just, they, they don't get it. You know, they say, well, I can do all things through Christ as if they have the power to do it. Paul's saying, Christ is the power here, not me. And not what I want, not what I care about, but what Christ cares about. So, in verse 10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, listen, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. Now look at his, and how he is content. He says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. What does it mean to be abased? He, he, he makes it clear. He says, Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. To be abased and to be abound, or, or to be abounding. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ. I can abound through Christ. I can be abased through Christ. I can be full with Christ, I can be hungry with Christ, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <clears throat> you see, Paul was a man characterized by this abounding restfulness of spirit. His rest was in Jesus Christ. And yet there was also present in his life a constant restlessness. I suppose the best way to put it is, is that he was restful in Christ, and yet he was also restless in his devotion to the service of Christ. So I'm not saying restless in a bad way. I'm just saying that he was restless in his devotion to the service of Christ. Because at this point in, in his ministry, where we are today in Acts chapter 20, Paul didn't tarry long in any one place. He was always on the move. He was always sensitive to the immediate need wherever he went. And still, listen, still he was lured to those distant places. He was lured to Rome. He still wanted to go to Rome. He still wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to even go beyond that. And if anyone totally understood Jesus' command to go to the uttermost part of the earth, Paul understood. Paul understood what, 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 what Jesus meant to go to the uttermost part of the earth. And this brings us... Now, to Paul's desire to have the Ephesian elders come to him in Miletus. So, remember this focus now upon the rest that he had in Christ and the restlessness in his devotion to service and the service of Christ. So, we're brought now to Miletus. Remember that Paul had a tight schedule when it came to uh, getting to Jerusalem before Pentecost, so he knew that it would be very hard to pull himself away from the church in Ephesus, besides the fact that he was still a marked man in that city. He knew that if he went to Ephesus, the people there would want Paul to stay longer. Uh, he would feel that same tug. He would want to stay longer with them. So he said, I've got to bypass it. But I'll go to Miletus, which was 30 miles south of Ephesus, and he called for the Ephesian elders to come to him so that he could sit down with them and give the church, go back and give the church his message. 
But he meets with the, with, with the elders of that church. And what we see in these next few verses is an apostle of Jesus Christ revealing his pastor's heart to the elders and to all. The characteristics that he clearly presents in the remainder of this chapter ought to be present in the life of any Christian minister and of all Christians in general. So this is not just for pastors. This is for everyone. This is for each and every one of us who love Jesus Christ. When we see what he says about himself, we need to embrace it. So consider verse 17. He says, For my leaders he sent to to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. And this this is how he describes it. You know how I lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility. I want you to notice that he doesn't just say with humility. He says with all humility of mind. With many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you. And taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know how I lived among you. There is no boasting in this. If we truly believe that this is, uh, this, this is God-breathed, this is anointed, that uh, uh, God's Word is as far as in the book of Acts and, and, and Luke writing it down, we are receiving really the very uh, uh, simple and, and, and humble and submissive heart of Paul. But laying it down very clearly, not in a sense of boasting, but in a sense of, of saying, this is, this is how I came to you. I want you to know how you are to be. I want you to know what it means to minister for Christ in a, in a, in a hard and, and, and uh, uh, terrible world. He says, serve the Lord with all humility. He opens his heart to them and he says, I served you, or I served the Lord with all humility. And before he mentions anything else, Paul talks about his humble approach to Christian ministry and work. Now it's interesting that when Paul writes to Timothy and and to Titus concerning the qualifications of an elder, and while he does touch on issues relating to humility, he doesn't mention humility in the qualifications. And yet, humility is to be at the very heart of the servant of Jesus Christ. Remember that the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is a great danger to anyone in a prominent position of leadership. We are to be quite mindful of maintaining a heart attitude of humility. Humbleness. To be humble before God and before God's people. Paul put it this way to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 6 and 7. He said, now these things, brethren, I figuratively transfer to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. By the way, it is at this point that uh, Paul is having to write to the Corinthian church. This is an earlier letter where he's writing to them because there were so many factions in the church. And factions led to pride, and, and, or pride led to the factions, actually, in their hearts. And so they had this divisiveness among themselves. So he's dealing with this particular issue, but he says that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And then he asks these questions. He says, for, what, for who makes you differ from another? 
Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? The implication here is that he's asking, what do you have that you did not receive from the Lord? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So in other words, he's saying, who made you better or different than anybody else? Who made you better or different than anybody else? And what do you have that you did not receive? If indeed they received it from the Lord, what do you have that you didn't receive? And then he even asked more pointedly, now, if you did indeed receive it from the Lord, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you boast as if it was always yours? You see, everything comes from God to us. And, and so this is, this is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with that issue of pride. And, and there are too many people today, you know, that, that, that act as if, you know, they're God's, they're, they're God's gift to this whole world. No, no, we're not God's gift to the world. We, we are God's servants to this world to bring them to Jesus Christ. You know, a story is told of a young Scottish preacher who was quite self-confident, literally bounding up the steps into a pulpit one Sunday morning. And boy, was he filled with, a, with he was filled with himself. He was filled with so such self-esteem, and, 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 and you know, so he's just got this self pouring right out of him, you know. So he gets up to preach, but unfortunately. He lost his way in the middle of the sermon. He became quite confused, actually. And in the midst of his confusion, he forgot his message. And as he came down from the pulpit, humiliated, an old Scottish elder who was present at the service said to that young preacher afterward, he said, young man, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have been able to come down the way you went up. Do you understand what he was saying? you understand what he was telling him? If you had gone up the way you came down, if you had gone up in humility, you would have come down in victory. Instead, you go up with his pride, but you came down humiliated. Paul says in Colossians chapters, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You know that pride gets in the way of every one of those things. And Paul tells us, put them on. The, the phrasing here is in the, in the original language is, is to say, put it on like, a, like, like, like you're putting on clothes. Like you're putting on garments. Put on tender mercies. Put on kindness. Put on humility and meekness and long-suffering. Bear with one another. The thing that sometimes gets us so much in trouble in the church is that we're... We, we, we're thankful to be forgiven by God, but we won't forgive like Christ forgave us. And then, then we think, you know, well, they owe us. No, they don't. You know, what do we owe? Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, we owe nothing but to love one another. We are to owe nothing but to love one another. 
But pride gets us in these situations. And if there's a complaint, forgive. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Peter even makes it more clear in his first letter. He says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And he says, be clothed. He just puts it right out there. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, whatever God resists, I don't want to be a part of that. If God resists the proud, then I don't, only be, I don't want to be proud. Why? Because I don't want to be resisted by God. You understand the picture? If, if, if I need to be humble, I need, if I need to die to myself and be humble, then, then you know what? God, God honors that. But be very careful that you don't fall into the, the aspect of false humility. Like the ones that have to tell you, oh, I'm just so humble. Well, if you have to tell me, then I have to worry whether you are. Rather be humble and just do the works of Christ with a humble heart. This is Paul. This is how Paul ministered the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he did it in humility. He served the Lord, notice, with all humility of mind. Is that not part of the mind of Christ? But meekness? And then he says he served the Lord with tears and trials. Serving the Lord with tears and trials. There's, there's a little bit of a separation here to understand. He served the Lord with tears. And then the trials or the temptations themselves came, of course, because of the plotting of the Jews. And there were the trials that he talks about. But when you combine these, uh, these things, you realize that that, that he was serving the Lord by serving the people with these tears. And while he doesn't mention this anywhere else as well, he does mention tears twice in this chapter. Here and in verse 31. Verse 31 he says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He warned them with tears. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Word of God. Do what the Word of God says. Live for Christ. Live with all your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. With tears, he would tell them. He warned them. You know, and, and we shouldn't think that, that Paul was given, you know, uh, we shouldn't think that he was some kind of a weepy person, you know. you know, Any little thing would make him, oh, well, that was just so beautiful. <laughs> and just crying all the time. You know, Paul was a tough man. But he, had a, but he had a soft heart. We shouldn't think that Paul was given to frequent outbursts of emotion, except perhaps in prayer. But in serving the Lord with tears, Paul is describing himself as a man of great empathy. A man of great empathy. In other words, Paul learned to identify with those to whom he ministered. Paul learned to identify with those to whom he ministered. Think of what he writes to the Roman church in Romans 15, or, I'm sorry, Romans 12, verses 15 through 18. He says, and I know you're familiar with this, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. 
Oh my goodness, there's so many people today, they want to just associate themselves with, you know, the, the highest forms of theology and doctrines of theology and, and all of that. Well, you know, that's important in, in its place. But God has called us to associate with the humble. In this case, the humble, those who have nothing, those who need everything, those who need love, those who need Christ, those who need salvation. He says, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And then I love what he says in verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. But Paul struggled with the people in their struggles And he grieved with them in their grieving. And I'm sure he was tried and he was tempted along with them through their tribulations as well. And we ought not to forget that Paul had enough of his own tribulations, realizing that there were people after him all the time. So even in the midst of that kind of struggle that Paul was going through, he was struggling with their struggles. He was weeping with their, with their weeping and, 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 and for their very problems and issues that he was going through. But here's the point. They saw in Paul something that they didn't see in the world around them. They saw in Paul something that they didn't see in the world around them. And folks, I need to tell you that people need to see the very same thing in us because the world won't show them Christ. We have to show them Jesus. We have to show them the love of Christ. We have to show them the humility of Christ. We have to show them the meekness of Christ. We have to show them the mercy of God and of Christ And the love of Christ. They need to see the same thing that they would see in the Lord and they would see in Paul and they would see in Peter and all the apostles. Who had the mind of Christ. To identify with the pains and the joys of all the people. Paul is a tremendous example of humility and of this empathy that that we are to have. But it didn't keep Paul from keeping back anything. He kept back nothing from the people. He taught them the whole counsel of God, as we'll see later in verse 27. He gave them everything that they needed for life and godliness through the Word of God, through prayer, through His intercessions. But as we see in verses 20 and 21, Paul preached publicly, he preached privately, and he preached pointedly. And if you want to add, he preached powerfully. But pointedly is that power. Preached right right to the point of people's needs spiritually. He says, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house. And I want you to notice, that word and there sets the distinction between publicly and privately. I taught you publicly and privately from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) You see, these things we have clearly seen in the ministry of Paul. His public ministry was evident in Ephesus, As he taught daily in the borrowed lecture hall, you know, every day he taught publicly. But it can be said that going from house to house to teach more privately was was not beneath such an apostle as Paul. 
You know, I'm quite sure that that Paul didn't have people kiss his ring if he even had one. People today, you know, stick out their hand and kiss my ring. Paul, Paul didn't want that. It's not what he was living for. He didn't demand any special treat for, treatment from people. We don't see that in anything that he wrote. To Timothy, of course, he wrote there at the, toward the end of his life. He said, you know, bring me, bring me my coat and <laughs> the books. But uh, there was no great demands as to, you know, he was a prisoner. For, he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, you know. People get off thinking that they have some kind of position that needs to be honored and glorified. Folks, there's only one person demanding of our reverence and, need, and, and not needing it, but, but demanding it and, and deserving it. That's Jesus Christ. I mean, he alone is reverent. He alone deserves the glory and honor. I don't. I'm just a servant, and so are you. So what I'm saying is that Paul didn't see himself better than others. Paul was a servant of God ministering to men and women. He was a servant of God ministering to men. He neither limited his message or his audience. He wanted to preach to all the word of God to all people. He wanted to preach all the word of God, I should say, to all people. All the word of God to all people. That was Paul's desire. And if anyone understood the heart of the psalmist, Paul understood it. Paul understood what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, when he says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaths with him. Paul was a sower of God's seed, God's word. And he rejoiced when it went forth and bore fruit for the kingdom of God. This is why when Paul said in verse 20 that he held back nothing, the understanding is that it didn't matter what came his way, he would faithfully teach what he had been called to declare. And so to the Ephesians he wrote this in Ephesians 4 verse 12. He says, you know, the apostles and the prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, they're all for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He says, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to equip you for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. Paul knew what he was called to do. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He puts it in terms of saying, I, I need to preach the gospel, because if I don't, woe is me. That's a statement of judgment. Let me be judged if I don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul preached. He had a great retirement plan too. He preached to his last breath. And when he took that last breath, before he was executed, 
He was then taken into glory. He came to understand the words that he gave in 1 Corinthians 15 about being changed from mortality to immortality, from corruption into incorruption. And God blessed him and said, Paul, everything you preached, you did faithfully. Enter in, my good and faithful servant. Lastly, Paul's method of teaching publicly, privately, and pointedly did not involve just a a cheery greeting or even an invitation to a church. His, His purpose was to confront people with the claims of Christ and with the need for repentance and regeneration. His message was very clear. Paul preached repentance. He says, repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel reduced to its simplest terms. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. You can read about the gospel at the very first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Paul knew his priorities. And this is where we want to prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. Paul knew his priorities. Paul wasn't going to let anything get in the way of the priorities that he knew he had from God in his calling and would not let those hindrances interrupt what his calling was. You see, sometimes we can get so busy and so caught up with, with things that we need to do, quote-unquote. These are quotation marks, by the way. What we need to do. That we feel helpless to do the things we really want to do. Someone, somebody once wrote an article entitled, If you are 35, you have 500 days to live. Let's not ask everybody. Anybody here 35? Nobody raised their hands. And I said, are you close to 35? Nobody want to tell me? I said, my, this is a very secretive crowd. How many of you are 35 or close to, you know, anybody? A couple. <laughs> Bunch of old people in here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was one person raises their hand. Close to 35. Okay, well, this is for you then, okay, Ben? Well, anyway, if, you, if you're 35, you have 500 days to live. Now, now its thesis was that, that when you subtract the time spent sleeping, working, tending to personal matters, hygiene, odd chores, medical matters, eating, traveling, and miscellaneous time stealers, in the next 36 years, you will have roughly the equivalent of only 500 days left to spend as you wish. I'd say that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to set our priorities right with God. Because every moment is precious to us until the day of Jesus Christ. Every moment. And all the moments that we live belong to Him anyway. I think that's the part that we need to really get into our hearts. That every moment of our life belongs to Jesus Christ. General Eisenhower is quoted as saying this. He said, the urgent is seldom important. And the important 
is seldom urgent. You see, it comes back to the way we set priorities. The urgent is seldom important, and the important is seldom urgent. Well, I like what it says in Psalm 90, verse 12, better. It says, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. This is what the Apostle Paul did. He applied his heart unto the wisdom of God. He numbered every day of his as Christ's. He says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. That should be our motto. That should be our slogan. There's so many slogans today. Churches have slogans. Businesses have slogans. Our slogan is one thing. To me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. As we continue on in chapter 20 of Acts, we'll see even more the depth of Paul's heart toward, toward the Lord. But as we prepare to come to this table today, as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup, think of those priorities in your life. Think of what's important. And if it isn't important to the Lord, then it's time to set those priorities right. I want to have the the, usher, the uh, elders come on up, and, and uh, as we get ready for uh, for communion this morning. But I, I, I want to read something to you because uh, I, I didn't have this in my notes, so it may not be up there unless they're very fast in putting this up. But but if you want, really want to understand setting priorities for the Lord and, and before the Lord, just take Colossians chapter four. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter three. Take Colossians chapter 3 and then read, read this passage, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits or sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now here's the, here's the key. It's verse 4. When Christ, who is our life. You see that phrase? When Christ, who is our life. What does that say about our priorities? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then, you, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's where we begin to set our priorities. Christ is our life. I mentioned Tom Landry a while back, coach of the Dallas Cowboys years ago. Christian, committed Christian. Only had one beef with him. One beef. Well, maybe a couple dealing with football, but that was back in the 60s, so don't worry about that. 
But just one beef. You know, he made a statement one time. He says, you know, he, he talked about his priorities. He says, you know, uh, I believe, you know, to serve God first, you know, your family, and then, you know, then your job. And it sounds nice, but I wanted to tell him, you know, it, it, it's just a little bit misleading. Let me tell you why. Because it isn't God first, your family second, and then your job. It's God in, it's God first and above all. It's God in your family, and it's God in your job. Because of verse 4 of Colossians 3. Christ who is our life. He is to be our life here. He is to be our life in our homes. He is to be our life at our jobs. He is to be our life in school. He is to be our life when we go in, even in, in our recreation, wherever it is. Christ is our life. Got it? Let's set that in our hearts today as we come to the table of communion.